We're definitely interested in trying to use tools on basically taking the expertise of our lawyers and building automation tools that offload that expertise into tools for lawyers, for internal use for lawyers, for potential clients, that they can get that information on demand uh, as opposed to having to have a lawyer basically regurgitate it and better information. I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law, where in each episode, we'll talk to a legal innovator about what they've been up to and hopefully get some real-world tips from them that lawyers can put to use in their practice. This episode is all about automation of legal processes. We talked to Memphis immigration lawyer Greg Siskin about how he uses technology to automate many of his legal tasks. We also talked to Tom Dreyfus. He's the CEO and co-founder of Joseph an app that permits lawyers to create bots to automate some of their workflows and processes. This episode was recorded live and direct from Soulsville, USA. That's right, Memphis, Tennessee. Don't think Memphis is a hotbed of legal tech activity? That might be somewhat true, but our guest lives there, and he's one of the earliest adopters of legal technology out there. On today's show, we talk to immigration lawyer Greg Siskind. He practices with the law firm of Siskind & Susser, where he handles all kinds of immigration matters. He helps individuals try to get legal immigration status. He helps corporate clients and startups try to get work visas for star talent from other countries. And he even helps sports and entertainment clients trying to get their artists and athletes permission to work in the United States. So why do I say Greg is one of the earliest adopters of legal tech? He is an OG as far as use of tech and legal goes, because he literally almost had the very first law firm website out there. I ended up getting married in Memorial Day of 94. I was working on this website, but uh, we took a little honeymoon. Uh, When I came back in the beginning of June, the website launched. Now, the sad thing for me was, had I launched the website before the honeymoon, I technically would have been the first. But two other DC large firms launched their sites like a week and a half, two weeks before Mine went up. Mine was like ready to go, but I wasn't going to launch a website while I'm like, you know, in Egypt at the pyramids and the stuff that we were doing. So I was just waiting and I just assumed that everything was cool. The good thing was for me, I got a ton of media. Nobody wanted to write about two big DC firms that had launched this website. They were more interested in the solo immigration lawyer in Nashville who had done this and was getting clients from all over the country. That was a lot more interesting for a reporter than how some four or 500 lawyer law firm was was using it to get corporate clients. And what was the goal of the website? I assume it's to get to get business, right? It was to get business and it was basically to be a publishing platform for me. So the other thing that, aside from the website that I started was an email newsletter. And that was the first email newsletter that I'm aware of. So the website might've actually landed a couple weeks late, but the newsletter that I put out was the first newsletter I think that any law firm ever distributed electronically. And that was uh, at the same time that the website launched. And I think I had to do it at the beginning. I was doing it at the beginning, believe it or not, through AOL, which was new also at the time. But AOL had the ability to allow me to do email distribution. And that was there was no listservs or any products that were out there. And not long at that was not very, no offense against AOL, but it was not a, in 1994 that email product was not all that great. I was building up content on the website from the newsletter. I had a, uh, a link on the, on the website that you could subscribe to it, and then I would manually add the person to the, uh, to the list. But that newsletter grew really, really quickly. I think it was up to about 40,000 subscribers to it at its peak. Wow. And what year was that? 
This was probably after about a, maybe about two years in. So not, not a long time then. It's still. No. So I was getting, it was being distributed far and wide and I didn't really have any competition from the immigration bar probably for a good two years. So I had my, I had, I had some space to grow. As we just heard, Greg saw the value in internet and email for marketing and client development. As an early adopter of a law firm utilizing the internet, it is not surprising that Greg progressed into using tech to automate tasks and processes that he was running into every day at his immigration practice. As we will hear throughout this episode, automation helps with more than just marketing, although that is a key feature and should not be overlooked. Automation helps create consistency in processes, it digitizes expertise, reduces mistakes, facilitates communication, and very importantly, it saves time. Greg's first foray into legal automation wasn't too sexy or complicated, but taking one step at a time, Greg's use of automation has grown exponentially. One of the things I did early on was try and find things that were not available electronically. Um, so even though the website was more of a marketing tool early on, I was taking a lot of primary resources and just digitizing them and getting them on our website. In terms of automation, the other thing that was a first for us back in about 97 or so was the immigration forms. This sounds like, you know, like a basic thing that you just go on to USCIS website and you can either... Which is... USCIS is the agency that handles immigration. You know, now you go on, there's a form section. You Some of them are electronically submitted. Some of them you, down, you download it as Adobe and you print them out. There was no Adobe, you know, well, there was. Adobe Acrobat had just started making PDF conversion tools available to the masses. So that was a traffic builder for me was I went and I got the forms, ordered the paper forms from the immigration service and got all the popular ones and then scanned them and made them into PDFs and put them on our website, which sounds like the lowest tech thing you can imagine today. But it was like a huge deal because it was the only place on the entire internet you could find government forms. The INS didn't, the INS was the agency before it was USCIS. They did not have a website until about 1998, 99. Their first website, all it was, was a photo and a bio of the INS commissioner. Not very helpful. So I was getting a lot of traffic there and it started to occur to me that, you know, so you asked when it got started. So I would say it's always sort of always been in the background trying to find. Well, I think I count that. <laughs> I mean, I, I count that at some level because you, you're automating the process of filling in these forms. Right. And then, you know, but in terms of more recent years, we're definitely interested in trying to use tools on basically taking the expertise of our lawyers and building automation tools that offload that expertise into tools for lawyers, for internal use for lawyers, for potential clients, that they can get that information on demand uh, as opposed to having to have a lawyer basically regurgitate it and better information because lawyers make mistakes. They oftentimes make assumptions as far as what they think they're hearing. I mean, I'm not talking about mistakes in terms of like providing, you know, malpracticing or anything like that, but not necessarily interpreting correctly what they're hearing or missing asking, a, a, you know, for some background information that would change the answers. And so we, a couple years ago, I started hearing about expert systems that were using uh, artificial intelligence and decided that that was something that made a lot of sense for immigration law. We are a practice that is very rules-oriented. It's a lot of times in our heads, we're using decision trees. We have a lot of times decision trees that we, in our practice, that we're using to figure out whether people qualify for different benefits. We are assembling a lot of documents that uh, are based on you know, what we're finding out. And we have been for a long time trying to figure out in our firm how to 
streamline processes and be more efficient and be more consistent how we do things across the firm. Uh, and as we started to get into that, heard about Neodologic, which is an expert system software that, that was one of the first AI products that were out there. Heard about Ross Intelligence and a couple others. But anyway, I contacted Neoda. Neoda had their, their early clients were largely large firms and had some interesting products. And I it was expensive, but I, I talked them into uh, taking a chance on a uh, on, an, on a small immigration firm that was going to try and do some different things with it. And that product has been great as far as uh, a lot of, we found it, uh, that it was very versatile as far as things that we could do. So for example- For the listeners, what's the elevator pitch in Neota Logic? What does it do for lawyers? Basically, it offloads the legal analysis from the lawyer's brain to- an application so that essentially the app is allows you to do an interview and basically come up with a legal analysis at the end that would be very similar to what a lawyer would be doing if you were face-to-face with the lawyer and the lawyer was interviewing you to figure out if you qualified or if a lawyer needed to get information from you in order to build a legal document. It basically automates that interaction between the lawyer and the client. One of the first things Greg did with true automation was client-facing. He created an app for people to use to see if they qualified for DAPA, which is the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans. That is a precursor to DACA, which I'm sure all of you have heard a lot about in the news lately, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Because of legal uncertainty, the DAPA app kind of got stuck in limbo. So then Greg made another app. This time it was an app that startups and entrepreneurs could use to see if they had a chance to get a visa to hire employees from outside the United States. Unfortunately for Greg, the powers that be also kind of put that app into limbo too. But the point is this. Apps can be built to help attract clients, help clients help themselves, and also streamline communications with both potential and existing clients. Well, so the first tool that we took out was um, it's kind of sad how, how this shook out. Well, I guess it depends on your perspective. But we wanted to have a big splash with uh, the first tool that we rolled out with Neota, And it was during the um, Obama administration. And they had announced a program in 2014 called Deferred Action for uh, Parents of Americans. And basically, this was the follow-up to the DACA program that's been in the news a lot lately. And DAPA was going to benefit for about 4 million people. And they announced the rules and then immediately was taken to court. And so what we had done was we built an app that helped people figure out if they qualify for the program. And there were a bunch of complicated rules as far as whether they qualified or not. And we built this whole thing, but we couldn't actually put it out there because the program is tied up in the courts. Well, it works its way all the way to the Supreme Court, and we find out what day the Supreme Court, you know, it's the last case of the year for the Supreme Court. So we had this we had this app built, and we were going to launch it as soon as the Supreme Court upheld DAPA. So we had this whole app built that was basically ready to go. We had press releases. We had everything all set, and then the Supreme Court ended up on a 4-4 tie, and the program died because the lower, they, the lower court the Fifth Circuit decision stood on there. So the first app ne- never actually launched because of that. It was a really good exercise for us to build this whole thing. We gambled that if it succeeded and the Supreme Court had ruled in favor, I think we thought that the odds were that they were going to, that we would have this, you know, it would be a very exciting 
news making thing. Not only, you know, was everybody be excited about what was about this program going forward, but here's this tool that's instantly available that you don't have to go to a lawyer. You could just go online and you, we had it in a Spanish version. We had an English version of it all ready to go. So that didn't happen. But, but you said it was a good exercise, <laughs> but there is one you did. We talked about it earlier before we yeah. went on the parole. Yes. So that was, that was also a, so Pre President Obama in 2014 came up with this whole package of these reforms that he was going to do uh, on immigration after Congress couldn't get their act together and pass an immigration reform package. So he had a bunch of announcements. One of them was the, the DAPA program I just mentioned. Another one was something called Entrepreneur Parole. Which is? Entrepreneur Parole was a program that they were trying to figure out this problem where they have this visa called an H-1B visa. Uh, it is in short supply and they've they've been had a lot of high profile cases where startup companies, founders didn't get picked in the annual H-1B lottery and they ended up having to close their companies down or migrate their companies to Canada or or not be able to grow as as quickly as they wanted, or or fire sale where the where the founders could get out of it. So they came up with this program that, based on a whole series of criteria, that the immigration service could exercise discretion and allow a founder of the company to qualify for a work card for up to five years. And just correct me if I'm wrong. And it's my layman's understanding of these H-1B visas. There's a quota on them. Yes, and they're only available to non-U.S. citizens with certain skills, with certain high-level skills. Right. Is that correct? It has to be at least a bachelor's level uh, background that they have. And they have been getting sometimes as over 200,000 applications for 65,000 spots. So it is very much a lottery. And it, it's a lottery. They draw them once a year. Basically, a company's fate. These startup companies, their whole fate depends on you know, whether they get picked or not in the lottery. And some of them have U.S. workers and they have uh, venture capital funding and there's a lot of writing on it. So... The Obama administration comes up with this plan and they issue a proposed rule in um, late 2015, late 2016, I apologize. And we built the app based on the proposed rule. And then we were watching to, you know, and then the plan was to tweak it when the final rule came out and launch the app. Just build the app and have it sitting on the server and then launch it, hopefully within a day or two of the final app because our assumption was that the rule wasn't going to change that much. And they, the Obama administration got this program launched like the week before Trump got inaugurated. So they, they beat the clock and they got the program out and they announced that it was going to have a six month lead in before the first application was going to come. But we had the app launched, I think, 36, 48 hours after the rule went final. So it was, and you say, watch, well, it's online. You enter a, a web address yeah, and a browser. it's still online. It's entrepreneur-parole.com. And we, so we launched this thing. And then of course the Trump administration decided that they wanted to kill the program, even though I don't really, I mean, it's a very pro-business program. I don't know what their problem is with it, but they, they decided they want to kill the program. And then it ends up in court where, and I was fortunate actually to be involved with the uh, plaintiff's group that was working on it, but the case was successful and the Trump administration was forced to actually open the program up. Uh, they hadn't. They were supposed to open it in July. After six months passed, they didn't do it. They got sued. The court said you have to open the program up. They opened the program up. They got about 15 applications, and they've been sitting there for all of 2018 without a decision. But the app is still up. It still so, technically tells you that you qualify, but it's going to take a judge probably to make the government. Uh, so let's it. talk about the app. It's built on the Oda logic. Yeah. Who's the target user? The target user are the founders themselves and the venture capital and, and funding community. 
and they go online and there's and I actually tested it out to see what so it did. So they go online, there's, there's questions asked. And yeah. the, the questions are the questions are, you know, when was the company founded? Where how much funding have you gotten? How uh, you know, whether the funders are qualified, are they US citizens, are they individuals, are they companies? They wanna there's a bunch of questions to see whether they the government can make a safe bet that the company has a reasonable shot at growing quickly and creating jobs. So we go through all of that. And then at the end, we came up with a meter from uh, red to green as far as the likelihood. Nobody actually, there's no guarantees with this program because it's discretionary, but there are certain things that definitely make you not qualify. And then there are factors that make you qualify. So basically what we ended up doing was the um, we gave a rough score on what we thought that the person's chances were and then an explanation of why we came up with that, uh, you know, what the negative factors or what the positive factors were. And then this is also, this was kind of a cool thing that we were able to do with Neota. If they scored poorly, we sent them to one page that was uh, to set up a paid consultation with the firm. And if they scored well, we sent them to another page where they got a free consultation with the firm. Of course, they didn't know, you know, people don't know that when they're filling it out. But the idea is that they scored well. We, you know, we thought that there's potential work there and uh, there's there's a solution for them. If they score poorly, we don't know if there's a solution for them. There might be other things that are available. But we were able to, you know, then that's one of the cool things about Neota is at the end of this sort of questionnaire, you can, you can have a you know, a scoring system, you can have it generate a document for you, you can do a lot of different kinds of things as far as what happens after the person goes through that process. Another app Greg built to help strengthen client relationships is a client satisfaction survey. And if you've listened to some of our prior episodes, you know conducting client interviews to gauge client satisfaction is key to building a strong practice. Uh, We wanted to build our own client survey tool. So we built a a very simple survey that looks very similar to online surveys that you that you take from any any business that you go to, I and mean, it's just a couple of questions and I drop down which attorney you work with, which paralegal you work with, and ask you know some basic questions about your experience, and then a uh, little comment box if you want to say anything negative or nice. You know you rate on five star, you know one to five like most of the websites that are out there, and if they score us a five, then they're invited to go to a, I mean, they go to another page where they're invited to go on to one of our social media pages where the firm has a presence, whether it's Avo or whether it's Google or Facebook or wherever, and rate us there. If it rates us poorly, that's actually more important information to me than a nice rating on on, on social media because I want to know what went wrong with the case uh, and where their dissatisfaction was because A, we want to address it, and B, uh, somebody that if you don't address it, they're going to go out on social media and say bad things anyway, and you'll have deserved them in a lot of cases if you didn't address them. So how do you get the survey to the client? So that's that's actually right in front of you right there. We stick that on the final letter that we send to the client, and oh. it's just a little sticky note that goes on, and there's just a little website that for feedback. And we um, some of the lawyers, I think, put it in their signature blocks. Some of them put the sticky notes on their letters that go out either at the end or in the middle of the case or wherever they are. So it's a, and I think also on the website, there's a, uh, there's a feedback link. We're going to take five from our conversation with Greg because it's now time for the Legal Tech Founder segment. In this episode, we're sticking to our automation theme because our guest is Tom Dreyfus. He's the CEO and co-founder of Joseph. Joseph is an app lawyers can use to create their own legal chatbots and streamline processes. Although Tom spends a good deal of his time here in the good old United States, he hails from the land down under, 
which is where we caught up to him. In Melbourne, 95 degree temps at 7.30 in the morning while I was dealing with sub-zero temperatures in Chicago in the middle of the afternoon. Tom, thanks for uh, being here today and good morning to you. My day's about done. Yours is just starting. Tell us a little bit about Joseph. Thanks very much for having me, Chad. What we've built with Joseph is a legal automation platform that is really easy to use. It's designed for any lawyer, anywhere, anytime to build logic-driven workflows, integrate them with document automation inside our platform and launch those products to their clients in a conversational interface. So as a legal bot, um, it's designed so that lawyers can take, you know, the high volume, repeatable services that they provide and create automated and scalable versions of them for their clients to access online. And I saw you have a law degree and were a solicitor prior to Joseph. Is that correct? That is correct. So as you might hear by my accent, I am Australian. I went to law school here and then practiced as a big law attorney in Australia. I clerked at our highest court. And then I went over to New York to study legal data analytics at Columbia Law School. And so how do you end up getting into legal tech and creating the app? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. We actually created the app in response to demand from both Australian and American legal services organizations who were looking at ways to use technology to help them to bridge the access to justice gap. And one thing that we realized talking to them, and it's something that's sort of been repeated to us over and over by lawyers and attorneys across legal organizations of every size, from the biggest firms to the smallest, from in-house teams to legal services organizations, was that legal technology, for the most part, is hard to use. So even though there are attorneys who really want to create products that they know their clients will use and love, the platforms to do it require intensive training. The barriers to using them are just too high for organizations to incorporate them into their practice. And so what we did was we identified this need for really simple, really easy to use legal technology initially in the access to justice space. And since we built and launched the platform, we've really expanded across the industry. So let's, let's talk a little bit about under the hood. What are some of the features that Joseph offers to create these bots? When we talk about Joseph, we talk about three core features. So the first one is a workflow builder. And so what that is, is a click type drag and drop interface for attorneys to build logic driven workflows that reflect the work that they do with their clients day to day. So that allows them to create series of questions, a conversation that their clients can use to provide them with all of the data that they need to do the legal work for them. Now, the second core feature is a document editor. And so what that looks like is a place for you to take your pre-existing templates, all of those legal documents that you have in your document management system, and you can input them into our platform and layer in the logic from the automated workflow that you've created. So you have some legal agreement or a form or a letter that you know you can create an automated form of if you only had access to the client data necessary to populate that document and generate it on a customized basis. So the second feature, the second core feature is that document editor for you to build those documents. 
And then the third core feature is the conversational interface itself. And so this is something that we're really proud of. I think that legal technology for a long time, especially for end users, for clients, has been pretty old fashioned, uh, stuck in kind of web forms and no one likes filling out forms. And so this, this third core feature is a conversational interface. So what some people might call a chat bot where your clients, or if it's internal facing, um, your attorneys get to interact with the automated products that you've built. That's where they put in all of the data that's going to feed into those automated documents that can then be generated as part of the end-to-end automated legal service that you've built. And you said that there's an API available? Absolutely. Um, So our API is open. Um, We can push and pull data from any external source. Um, We have a number of really exciting integrations that have been both built already and are in the works and very happy to to talk to anyone interested in using the platform um, to integrate with third-party data sources about their plans, their projects. Um, That's some of the most exciting work we do. And the app is, it can be used really virtually any size of law firm or legal department, right? That's absolutely true. So to give you a sense of who is using it, we have a solo lawyer in Florida who is using it to create an automated version of a part of filing for bankruptcy, all the way up to one of the largest firms in the world who is rolling out access to Joseph on a distributed basis across offices in, I think it's 12 different countries. And then in between, we have some of the most impactful legal services organizations using the platform. We even have the American Bar Association using Joseph to power a service that they provide to their members. And let's talk about that for a second, because you mentioned to me before we hopped on, that's a program called Blueprint. So if people want to see Joseph in action, they can visit the ABA's website. And where would they find that? Absolutely. If, if you head to abablueprint.com, you will see this great service that's been developed in partnership with the ABA and Curo Legal. And so what we've done on Joseph uh, with the ABA is build this service that small firm attorneys, solo attorneys can use to understand, you know, what technology is out there, uh, what technology they should use for different parts of their practice. And all of this is powered by Joseph's logic engine. And at the end of your interaction with ABA Blueprint, the system will actually provide you with a report containing recommendations of different products. It'll diagnose, you know, where in your practice, you know, some technology might really help you do what you do even better. Well, that's great. I appreciate your time today. If people want to learn more about Joseph, uh, where do they go? So you should head to josephlegal.com. You can request a demo that'll come through to my team and I will be in touch as soon as I possibly can. So let's get back to our talk with Greg Siskind about automation of legal processes in law firms and legal departments. So Greg has talked a lot about applications that are client-facing, but many of the benefits legal departments and law firms can gain is the automation of internal processes. For instance, Greg's firm uses automation to generate retainers and engagement agreements. So we have a retainer generator tool that we built also using Neota. So the problem we were encountering at the firm was that we would have a template that we would push out to the lawyers, and it was like the telephone game where everybody starts out with the same 
engagement letter, and then they evolve in different directions and people add something that, you know, this lawyer adds something for this case that made sense in that case. And then they basically mark up that same engagement letter for the next client. And then eventually everybody has different engagement letters across the firm. We wanted to end that and have consistency and make sure there were certain important things that we wanted to have in the, uh, in the document, like uh, the um, conflicts of interest and consistency on fees and all kinds of things like that. So we decided to build this tool that would ask basic questions to the lawyer that was creating the engagement letter type of case and how they wanted to structure the fees and all kinds of things like that. And we built in fee calculators to make it easier for people to actually, we build a lot of cases on a flat fee basis at the firm. So we may structure where people pay in benchmarks at different stages, or they may pay a flat fee per month, or they may pay X percent quarterly or that kind of thing. And it's, there's different ways that it's done. We also wanted to make sure that we were having consistency on our fees. We have a fee schedule. And so we also built it in with the tool where we wanted the firm's official fee to flow into the agreement. Now, a lawyer may make an adjustment here or there from the official fee. But we built this tool that after the lawyer fills out the form, which maybe a dozen questions or so, then it will it'll generate the document, it'll calculate the fees, it will pull in the the fee from the fee schedule, and then it just makes it a lot faster for the lawyer to push it out. Um, and then we upload it to write signature for digital signature and send it to the client. But we have a, uh, the lawyers like it, and it also would solve this problem if we had all these inconsistencies. One of the most ambitious automation projects Greg and his firm undertook is a tool that its lawyers and clients can use to determine if doctors from other countries might qualify for work visas in the United States. As noted earlier, although Greg practices in a law firm, automation is also very well suited for use in corporate legal departments. And the doctor visa analysis tool he and his firm has developed is a great example of how certain types of legal analysis can be automated, something in-house legal departments can take advantage of for legal questions that come up routinely and tie up law department resources when they may not need to. It's a tool that helps to determine if a doctor qualifies for a visa and the reason why it's so complicated is immigration is all federal. So generally speaking, we have one set of rules for the whole country for immigration. Except for doctors, Congress created this program where they delegated to each state the ability to custom design their own immigration program to get doctors into shortage areas, mostly rural areas and Indian tribal clinics and places like that. And so what will typically happen for us is physician recruiters have a real struggle of trying to figure out whether they can recruit a doctor or not that was educated abroad. They all train in the United States, and it's about a quarter of all the doctors that are in the United States in training. So we're not talking about a small group. We're talking about you know, roughly um, seven, 8,000 doctors that enter the U.S. every year for training for residency programs. So it's a pretty big pool of doctors that they're recruiting from. But anyway, figuring out whether they qualify, there are so many rules uh, and they differ from state to state. It's very hard for a physician recruiter, a headhunter, to be able to figure out if they can recruit a doctor or not for their facility and whether the doctor qualifies because doctor has to meet a bunch of requirements. The hospital has to meet a bunch of requirements. So give me an example of some of the requirements that have to be met. So they have to um, they have to accept Medicaid. They have to be in what's called a health professional shortage area, which is uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services designates certain locations as, as having shortages of doctors. They have to have a uh, certain amount of recruiting that they've gone through to try and get the doctor there. They have salary requirements that they have to meet. Sometimes there's a bunch of requirements for what would need to be in the employment contract, which will work for some employers and not for others. A lot 
of issues that have to be dealt with. And I think it's one of the most complicated areas in immigration law, which is why there's not a lot of lawyers, immigration lawyers that handle doctor cases. But the challenge that we've had over the years is because these physician recruiters get intimidated by the rules, they tend to, even though the shortages are dire in some places, they will still do everything that they can not to look at the at, at the international doctor, even though they may be educated, you know, trained at Harvard and have all the requirements that they want. They just are intimidated by the immigration aspects of it. So the lawyers, a lot of times, if you can make the process easier for the recruiter, it makes good sense from a business point of view from an immigration lawyer because they will more they're more likely to recruit that doctor, and then they're more likely to use your services. So over the years, we've decided, for example, even though we charge for consultations, we always said we're not, we don't charge hospitals for consultations regarding physician recruiting because we didn't want to have one more reason for them to put that resume to the side. But when they contact us, we have to go through this research process to figure out whether this location qualifies. We have to look at their address. We have to find ask them a bunch of questions about their own practices. We have to ask questions about the doctor. I mean, there's and sometimes it takes us a couple of days to get back with them, and that in and of itself is it's a burden on the firm because we have to go through this research process. Then they may end up not hiring this uh, doctor, and it's a burden on the recruiter who has to sit and wait. And they may still decide that you know what, it's still too much of a pain in the neck to call the law firm up, even though. We're not charging for it. So what we wanted to do was to build out a tool that essentially had all the research built into it. The question sets would be different for every state because remember, this is the, every state gets to custom design their own program. It would query the necessary databases. So remember, there's a wage, a salary question, and it's based on Department of Labor data. So we have we wanted the tool to query the data from the Department of Labor. We wanted the tool to query the shortage area data. And then we wanted them to ask all the questions that were appropriate for that particular state. Some states have some federal programs in there as well. So it sort of makes it more complicated because you have to ask questions based on more than one potential program that you could use in the state. So we had this idea of this simple looking app that was actually fairly massive and what's happening behind the scenes. And we have been pushing it out about a state per week over the last year to finally get that done. And I think think that, I mean, it's probably, I think, the most ambitious app that anybody will have done with Neota, and probably, in, I think, in legal, for using a, an expert system like this, probably as far as the amount of labor that's gone in, I think probably as much as any tool that's been developed to date. I got two questions for you on that. Yeah. So number one, who's using it? The attorneys, paralegals, others in the firm? It'll be used by the attorneys and the paralegals who need to find out the answers themselves. So it's a lot faster for us to look it up in the tool than it's going to be to, you know, basically go and do the research. And what's, how was the answer given to you? What's spit out? So at the end, it spit out a, uh, it's, we use that metering system, red, yellow, green light. Red means that you don't qualify, and it will tell you why you didn't qualify in there, because it may be something that you can address. It'll tell you yellow, like some states, for example, have a, some of the programs have a limited number uh, that you can do per year in the state. So it may mean that you've met all the qualifications, but they f have a lottery for doctors in their state, and so you may not qualify be, even though you meet all the rules. Or green, it's a state, there's either no n limits on the numbers or it's a state that tends to never fill up. And then we have a checklist of all the items that are gonna be needed in order to be able to proceed with the case. So this is something we want clients also to fill out because they'll get the answer they want without having to wait on the law firm. So they'll know whether they should recruit that doctor or not. Basically, they're, they're getting a green light 
to recruit the doctor. And in some of these cases, I mean, you're talking about people that are going to be making anywhere from two to $500,000 a year salary. So it's a lot of money writing on recruitment. And they'll get a list of all the things that they are going to have to provide in order to proceed with the case. So that that's also something that saves some time before they actually, and the law firm gets it as well. So we know when they contact us, you know, what the app said on there, we can look at the logic as well. And we'll know that without having to spend the time going through all the questions again, that this is going to be a case that should work as long as they answer the questions correctly. But that's, so it's, it's designed for clients and it's designed for us. And then if we were talking beforehand, we probably will sell it to our competition as well. So what goes into the development of Siskin and Susser's automation tools? A team effort. So there's a couple of folks that are involved. So we have the lawyers that are involved on the um, the quality control issue, making sure that, the, you know, the, going through the question sets that the, the answer is correct and that the questions are the correct questions. We have a couple of paralegals who have been helping as far as developing the question sets. These are people that regularly work with clients in terms of developing the checklist and everything that they're going to need. And then we had a um, two people in the office that have been involved with the coding on it. And it's Coding not in the sense that you have to have a background as a uh, as, as a computer programmer. Uh, with Neoda and with some of the other tools, you need to have be technically comfortable, but you don't have to have a programming background in order to be able to uh, to to develop the Neoda. And that's uh, the whole point of these sets. tools. The non right. those with non development, non coding backgrounds, they can be trained. Right. So we so we've had probably probably on this tool about six or seven people that have been working on it consistently. As I got ready to end my visit with Greg, I asked him the question I ask most of our podcast guests. Where can people start doing what he's doing? So I think one of the first things that you should be doing as a lawyer, you know, it's not so much from a technology perspective, but you really should be mapping out your processes. So in most practices, even though every case may be you know, unique and have its own, that there are standard procedures for it. If you're a litigator, there are certain ways, you know, certain steps that you go through in terms of uh, preparing your documents and collecting information and how you set up your files and all that. And I think the first thing that we've been struggling with and trying to deal with it as, as well in our firm is really trying to map out all of our processes so that we can figure out where we can streamline and automate but just the actual process of going through and figuring out, even if you don't develop, use technology for to automate that system, having your system actually mapped out and understanding what your system is, and it may be that it's completely haphazard. You know, if you go through that process, I think it sort of reveals itself of where you should be automating. So that's step one. I think that you know, it's been around for 30 years, but document automation, probably most law firms can start with that as far as figuring out where, you know, your forms library that you've, that everybody's had and used to have it in file cabinets and now it's electronic, but that's probably the easiest place for a lot of firms to start is on basic document assembly. And you don't have to have necessarily artificial intelligence tools to be using that. There are tools that have been around for a lot of years that, that are available for that. So I would probably say that would be the place I would say for a lot of firms would be to start with document assembly. As far as the expert systems kind of thing that we're talking about, I think the good news is this is an area that is about to get a lot of competition and a lot of less expensive tools that are pretty user-friendly. And we've been seeing a lot of them that we've, you know, in the course of researching how we, you know, how we're moving forward. So I, I think once you've gone through that and figured out, you know, the and probably I'm hopefully that some of the things that we talked about today will give people sort of some ideas of 
when they're thinking about the interactions that they have with their clients, that there's a lot of repetition in how they do things and the advice that they give. But I would say probably, my guess is in the next six to 12 months, some of these inexpensive tools are gonna be coming online that are do some of the things that Neota does, some of the things that some Neota probably, you know, some things that Neota does probably won't be that easily available. But I would say that um, the cost probably won't be as much of a barrier as they have been. So those are a couple of things I think that firms could do. Well, that's great. Appreciate your time. If people wanna get in touch with you, how do they find you? Uh, they can find me on the uh, on our website, visalawvisalaw.com or on LinkedIn. Probably the two easiest places. Great. Thanks. Thank you. So that's it for another episode of Technically Legal. We appreciate you listening and hope you enjoyed it. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcasting platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, etc., etc. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot me an email at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, this has been Technically Legal.